0: Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk ESG, a podcast series by Linklaters. My name is Walid Rasulmani, and I am a corporate partner at Linklaters. With the COP27 UN Climate Summit approaching, we're taking the opportunity to talk to a range of industry experts about the opportunities and challenges presented by the changing ESG landscape in the region. Joining me today is Habib Abdurrahman, the head of ESG at InvestCorp. In his role, Habib is responsible for the design and execution of InvestCorp's sustainable investing strategy across the firm's corporate and investing platforms globally. Habib is based in Abu Dhabi and was previously a principal in InvestCorp's corporate development function, where he led on several firm-wide strategic initiatives, including key aspects of the firm's strategic acquisitions. Habib, it's a real honor to have you on our podcast, and thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you very much, Willie. It's a pleasure
0: to be here. Habib, how did you become interested in ESG? When we first spoke, you mentioned a letter that you wrote when you were young. Could you tell me about that?
1: Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think firstly, let me just say, you know, I, you know, I don't have a long history of engagement uh, with environmental or social agendas, but I think I've long acknowledged our uh, collective need to really protect the place that we all call home and I think over the years I've become a stronger advocate for sustainable fair and responsible business practices and I mean to answer your question I think you know last summer I was visiting my mother back home in London and uh, I was helping to clear up some of the old boxes uh, and I came across a letter that I'd written to the UK government's uh, department of transport uh, when I was nine years old uh, in which I expressed my concern really about an oil spill that happened in the UK, uh, the 1996 Sea Impress incident and the government's response to it. For those of, who, you, know, of you who don't know about the, uh, the incident itself, what essentially happened was uh, the in, in February of 1996, the Sea Empress, which was a, a single hull tanker, hit some rocks just off of the southwest of Wales. And the ship's cargo of 135,000 tons of North Sea oil started to spill into the sea. And while authorities were trying to you know, bring the vessel under control, more than half of that oil had escaped, uh, impacting over 120 miles of beautiful coastline. And I can vividly remember the, the photographs of oil-covered birds, the volunteers running the makeshift you know, animal hospitals. And really, this was an environmental disaster, and I think perhaps my first memory of, of one. Um, I think not only did this have a devastating effect as I say on the coastline and on wildlife, it also devastated the lives of fishermen and the local economy was impacted uh, too. So yes, I mean I, I decided to write a letter and the government kindly wrote back um, sharing my concerns and committed to ensuring that nothing like this would ever happen again. Now I mean we all know that oil spills have happened again across the world. Uh, but I think the positive to draw from here is that the incident really prompted a full scale review of safety at British ports and improvements were subsequently made. And so as I think about this, um, you know, I'd like to think that small efforts like a nine year old writing a letter had a small part to play in prompting a review of standards and of the training that was provided to Port Authority pilots. and. You know, here I am, 27 years later, in a role, I hope, that in some ways
0: pays pays, uh, homage to that nine-year-old boy. That's a great story, and thank you for sharing it. It must have been very encouraging that the government responded to your letter. You've been at Investcorp for some time, and you started in the firm's corporate development function. Of course, Investcorp is famous for making high-profile acquisitions of companies like Gucci and Saks Fifth Avenue. Could you briefly describe to us what Investcorp does?
1: Sure. We're one of the largest alternatives asset managers uh, in the region, founded in 1982. We're actually celebrating our 40th anniversary uh, this year. Uh, We're truly global in footprint. We've got 13 offices around the world, and we've just passed the 500 employee mark. And I'd say we're a truly diverse firm. Uh, And at the last count, we've got representation from around 52 nationalities. In terms of our investing businesses, we invest 100% in private markets across three core asset classes, those being private equity, real estate and credit. But we've also uh, got a liquid alternatives business, an infrastructure business in partnership with Aberdeen Standard, um, and a GP staking business in which we Take minority stakes in other asset managers. And most recently, we launched a new insurance offering uh, to our clients. Today, we have about $43 billion of assets under management. And just to speak to the scale of growth we've experienced over the five, past five to six years, the time that I've been at the firm, when I joined, our assets were a quarter of that. Um, and today, we're really managing funds predominantly for large institutional investors across the world, as well as for retail clients. And I think I'll add that, you know, I I believe uh, that as an asset manager, as an investor, we really have a duty to our clients to not only uh, deliver competitive returns, but to do so, I think, in a manner that is responsible and consistent with, I think, the emerging expectations
0: of all of our stakeholders. It's fair to say that Investcorp is an innovator in global finance, We often hear about embedding ESG in the private sector. What does ESG mean to Investcorp and what does it mean in practice to embed ESG?
1: Well, I think within the asset management industry, uh, embedding ESG or integrating ESG as it's also known is really about enhancing the way we consider sustainability issues across our investment processes. But I think in doing so, allows us, on the one hand, to really identify issues that could have, as a result of environmental, social, or governance events, a negative impact on the financial operating, or even reputational performance of the businesses that we look to invest in. Um, so, for example, I mean, the potential impact on top-line revenues of changes in consumer behaviour, where as we've seen, consumers are more often today opting for sustainable alternatives, or indeed the potential cost implications of future ESG-related regulation on underlying profitability of of companies, for example, carbon pricing. But I think it's also about the impact that business activities can have on the elements of on key elements of sustainable development whether that's in relation to the environment, society, or more broadly, the economic development of the countries in which we and our companies operate. That, I think, is really the crux of what embedding ESG means in the asset management industry, also, I think, known as double materiality. And there's we've really developed an internal responsible business framework at the core of which uh, seeks to support our companies to build responsible operations to better employment practices and really help them to enhance the way they think about their impact on the environment and society. Now, I think it's true that certain issues have really come to the fore in recent years with perhaps renewed fear, but also I think renewed optimism, such as the impact of climate change. And here I think the private sector and investors, particularly with those with a long-term mindset, can and should do more. I mean, take fighting climate change, for example. What that means is not only a transformation of the energy system, but I think a transformation of the way businesses think about value chains across every industry. How can we do things differently that removes the negative impact on the environment, or at least lessens the blow? Here, I think you know, investors hold the purse and can provide the capital that's needed To scale the technologies that are going to help us to transition to net zero, but also in the development of new technologies and in advancing the deployment of these technologies in, I think, the markets that need them most.
0: That's very insightful and it's helpful to put substance on what may seem to many to be somewhat amorphous concepts. Turning to the role of the private sector more generally, what is it that the private sector ought to be doing? and Where do you see the opportunities?
1: Well, I think the private sector has recognized uh, a number of things, particularly in the past few years. I think, firstly, you know, that while the economy that we've built today has brought prosperity to many, it hasn't to all. And I think people are now questioning companies' social license to operate. So I think that's the first thing. Secondly, I think that the global energy transition that's underway presents one of the greatest commercial opportunities of our time, and I think investors in the private sector have recognised that. And I guess, thirdly, that being climate competitive or carbon competitive is going to be an increasingly important factor to determining shareholder and stakeholder value. I mean, I think at InvestCorp we recognized that decarbonisation will trigger one of the biggest capital reallocations since the Second World War, perhaps, across all sectors and across all countries. And I think the shift to a low carbon economy will create entirely new industries and value chains within the next five to 15 years. The great decarbonisation challenge, I think, can largely also be solved with available technologies that, amongst other things, I think just need capital to scale. And I think the opportunity here for investors, particularly those with a long term mindset, is to be that catalyst to accelerate the transition across a number of uh, key sectors. Take power generation, for example, which I think is a story that's largely told. And the focus here is really transitioning the traditional energy system to renewable sources of energy. But that's not going to happen overnight. uh, And there are multiple complex factors at play. And I think we mustn't also forget the, the imperatives in the emerging markets when it comes to ensuring a transition that is just and fair, I think, to all. I think another key sector that we find quite interesting is transportation and the need to really decarbonize across all forms of transport, whether that's road, rail, aviation, or even maritime. And I think we've seen a number of attractive investment opportunities in the electrification space, whether that's in relation to battery technologies or powertrain electrification, all sectors that we're seeing growing at double digit rates. Then you've got sectors like agriculture, uh, particularly alternative proteins, which has become quite a hot topic recently. And while there are still issues to overcome in this space, I think what we've seen are several players demonstrating really strong commercial traction here. And another area perhaps is is the decarbonisation of buildings, both from an embodied carbon perspective, i.e. the materials and the design principles that go into constructing a building, but also from an operational carbon perspective. I mean, that's the, that, and by that I mean the ongoing carbon intensity of the building, and we've seen companies here really developing technologies um, that help building managers to optimise the way they use energy within a building. As I say, there are, at least in my view, a number of very interesting companies across all of these sectors, which have proven technologies and are operating in markets with strong growth and are being supported by positive regulatory developments.
0: Harib, I think that's a constructive way to look at a daunting challenge. As for the public, you're an advocate of public engagement and a strong believer in the positive role of young people. How do you engage with the public on sustainability and with young people in particular?
1: Look, I think it's only when you get policymakers, business, consumers, The general public and young people uh, together, it's only then that I believe a conversation gets started. And, And that conversation then leads to ideas, those ideas get debated, and gradually they get more attention. And I think then the hope is that that turns into policy and then eventually into plans for action. And then one hopes that action translates into the outcomes that we seek. And I think, you know, young people tend to be more vocal about the things that need to get done especially on topics that will likely affect them more in the future, things like climate change. And I think we'll do well to listen and ensure that they are part of the conversation and the planning process. I mean, at Investcorp, we've been involved in some initiatives in the region, including Mazda's uh, Youthful Sustainability Initiative, which I personally have found hugely beneficial as I think about how we build our own responsible investing programme here at Investcorp. But I think, you know, the other thing that I'd like to mention is I think, With young people, you're almost pushing an open door. They understand the problem, they understand what needs to get done, and the pace with which that needs to happen. But I think the other question we also should think about is, how do you drive change among other generations? And here I think it's really a question of leadership, of cultural change, of behavioural change, and of ensuring that the correct mechanisms and incentives are in place to really encourage the sorts of behaviours that we want to see.
0: I like the phrase pushing an open door in that context. I wanted to put to you a final question that we're asking everyone on this podcast series. The drive towards net zero seems like an impossible aim sometimes with particular difficulties for the region. Despite those challenges, what gives you hope for our planet?
1: I'm optimistic about sustainability in general, I'm optimistic really about the huge opportunity that's in front of us and what's ultimately achievable if we leverage the power of finance, of politics, of the private sector to tackle the huge problems that we see in front of us. I also think we've got lots of incredibly intelligent and motivated people on this journey, not only to move us in the right direction, but to ultimately increase the pace of change. Ultimately, look, I don't think there's any place for pessimism here. I think pessimism is really the easy route to take, I think. I think we've made some incredible progress and strides in just the past two years, and I'm hopeful that based on the progress that I've seen, not only here in the region, but globally, that we'll make even more progress in the years to come. And and I guess I'll just finish on, on this point. I think leaders really respond to pressure. That much, I think, is true. So I think we must all just remain committed particularly in the face of short-term noise that we've all seen, that, in my view, detracts from what are larger and longer-term trends that we are all seeing today.
0: Habib, thank you so much for joining us. And thanks to our listeners for joining, too. The reason we wanted to do this podcast series is to look at the ESG landscape in the Middle East from different and unique perspectives. It's been fascinating to hear Habib talk about the opportunities and challenges in the drive towards net zero It gives us much to consider. It was great to speak to you. Thanks, Waleed. It's been a pleasure.